clubhouse. I'm Beth Kushnack. And I'm Caroline Daly. Welcome to Decorating the Set, from Hollywood to your home. For over 30 years, I've created settings for countless award-winning television series and feature films. As a set decorator, I'm a storyteller. My job is to compose visuals that both capture and enhance any story. Now, I want to help you capture and enhance your story. I'm on social media every day, and Beth's Instagram is a must-look for me. Over and over, I see fans asking her, how can I get the look in my own home inspired by something I've seen on screen? There's nothing I enjoy more than helping people create a space that allows them to best express themselves. Subscribing to Decorating the Set means you'll never have to tackle these projects alone. I'll be the decorator by your side. This week on Decorating the Set, from Hollywood to your home, we're welcoming a guest host. Hello, Pod Clubhouse podcaster Paul Daly. Hello, hello, everybody. <laughs> Hi, Paul. Hi, Beth. Since we're all huge movie and TV lovers, it's hard to believe that there'd be one amongst us that would be a mega lover. But I'd have to say that's Paul. I think it's an easy win in the Daily House, at least. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably true. Probably true. Well, we're excited to have you today, Paul. And I know you and Beth are going to dive deep into all of her different projects that she's worked on over the years. And I cannot wait to hear what you uncover. <laughs> the deepest, darkest secrets. <laughs> of my lengthy career. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my goodness. All right, Beth. I got to listen in on some of the history-related episode. So I know that you had a very interesting background in, in schooling. And I had a question, particularly about any of the relationships that might have been formed during school, because I know filmmakers tend to work with who they like. <laughs> and a lot of times those relationships are formed in, in school. Is there anybody that you went to school with that you still cross paths with? You know, I do hark back to my time at the National Theatre Institute for that, which is the fall semester of my junior year in college. And the playwriting professor I had there, David Barry, took me from graduating college right into my professional career where I started off working at the WPA Theatre. The place where you tend to reconnect, I think, with people is when you do episodic television, surprisingly enough. For instance, I recently saw John Dahl, the incredible director, who I did rounders with when he directed an episode of Evil. <laughs> so those are always great connections when you see the list of directors coming or when I do a small New York unit in between my episodic schedule and get to reconnect pretty much in every department with people that I started with. I think there's still a group of us old timers left, many of whom I work with on a daily basis because they're my team, but there's a group of us out there and it's amazing. You know, we may not have gone to school together, but we went to, you know, literal film school together coming up to right. the ranks. I've looked at your IMDb page. I realize there's probably some stage stuff in there that doesn't list on there, but I was looking at that as a kind of a guide, but it's hard to tell when exactly you got started working as a professional. When was that? Somewhere in the late 80s? It was. You, you know, I do tend to date myself often because now 
on my Instagram, I'm having fun with doing a flashback almost daily to my old movies and TV shows. But yes, I've been pretty official in the film business for over 35 years now. I understand that there's probably a hierarchy that ultimately everybody answers to somebody else. But at some point, you do get to call yourself the boss of what it is that you're doing. Which project was that for you? Probably my biggest first I Am The Boss project was the New York unit of a multi-part miniseries with the great Valerie Bertinelli called I'll Take Manhattan. I didn't see that one on the list, or at least I, I went right over it. Valerie Bertinelli was in that. Was, was that a miniseries, you said? It was a Judith Krantz written TV miniseries. The bulk of the interiors were shot in Canada, and I had the great fortune to meet Charles Bennett, who was the production designer on that job, when I was actually asked to come in and interview to be the assistant set decorator. And I was in the office waiting a long time. And I actually was working on another job that day. And uh, all of a sudden, I got called in by the producers and was told that the actual New York set decorator was taken ill and the job was mine. That was a huge shock for me because Whoa. I wasn't even in the union at that point. <laughs> uh, but that got worked out. And very shortly thereafter, I remember one of my greatest planning challenges as a set decorator ever was actually we did almost three running blocks in Chelsea where we dressed storefronts into different periods the 20s, the 40s, and the 80s at Whoa. that point. And we had to shoot all of that, displaying different periods. So we literally blocked out the work for the camera to wait for us to redress for another decade. That was considered an amazing production through the art department and the set decoration department to plan all of that out. So it was definitely my first experience having grown up in Manhattan, worrying about things that a set decorator needs to think about in terms of period work like in those days, 20s, 40s, there were no street lines painted on the street. There were no air conditioners in the windows. So right, yeah. all of these things fall under the art department to do. And in those days, you know, now we would make that correction with visual effects. Sure. But in those days, we did the real deal. <laughs> that kind of leads me to a category of question on my sheet here that I called Hollywood stuff that Joe Average might not know. But when he looks up Beth Kushnick on IMDb, I find that you have credits in the art department and set decorating. So what's the difference? Is there a difference? There really is not exactly a difference. There are some jobs that I have been the production designer and those fall sometimes in the IMDB world under art department, but it's all mostly set decoration. In New York, the categories in which a set decorator works are a little different than anywhere else. So here we're responsible for a multitude of departments. We deal with greens, we deal with hardware, we deal with drapery, 
we deal with many different aspects that, for instance, in Los Angeles might be done by a construction coordinator or another department. Mm -hmm. So we're very, very hands-on in my union local IATSE Local 52. As a set decorator here in New York, I have a lot of responsibilities, which would hark back to the things I've mentioned before uh, that we have to be concerned with that isn't just pure decorating, you know, that serves whatever show I'm working on, whether it's a period show like the air conditioning units to deal with or when we shoot on the streets, street signs and all kinds of little details that you wouldn't normally think of. I can imagine that the pressure for that to be your first I am the boss job, the little bit that I know about shooting is that it all revolves around um, setups and how many setups you can get shot in a day yep. and, and keep timing. And so if you're the department that is the one having to change out street signs and flower boxes, <laughs> stuff like that to make sure that everything looks right, you're affecting how many setups can get shot in a given day. So for that to be your first job in your your 20s, wow. That's yeah, it was <laughs> trial by fire. You know, I had some good preparation. My work in the theater was good prep. But when I think back to those early days, definitely youth was on all of our sides <laughs> uh, in terms of getting that kind of work done. And, you know, life was different then. You didn't do your work with technology. So it was really you know, keeping a motivated crew and everybody doing what they were expected to do at a, at a very high level. So you mentioned the difference between New York and elsewhere. This, this may not be an overly interesting question, but you have me curious. Is that a difference in the way that it's run traditionally or is it the way the unions allow it to work? Both of those things. It's just, you know, in Los Angeles, because of the studio system where all the work kind of started on the back lot, where they have drapery departments and construction departments, it's just a different way of working. We don't have that necessarily that back lot lifestyle or experience, although the stages that have been built up and added to more recently for us here on the East Coast over the last number of years include a kind of feel of a back lot at both Broadway stages in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, Silver Cup Studios, and Steiner Studios. But our union job descriptions still remain the same. So we work in a very specific way, and a lot falls to the set decoration department. You've described in uh, other interviews, uh, like you mentioned, the greens and stuff like that. That's stuff that probably most of us wouldn't think of when they think set. They they think set <laughs> interior, essentially. But, but what you've described makes it sound all-encompassing. Well, you know, that's why many of the New York units that I've done where the interiors might be shot on stages outside of New York, but they come to New York for exactly that, the see New York, have a New York unit, or say, for instance, the film Jumanji, we went to Keene, New Hampshire for that unit. You would be incredibly surprised how much planning and effort and actual labor it takes to create everything and to do it so the point is probably correct that you don't notice mm. because that's my job to serve the script and you don't want anything to stand out that is inappropriate so getting to that point 
especially when you're doing work from another period, takes a lot of effort and you don't necessarily notice. If you've done your job right. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if, if I've done my job right, I'm the only one who knows. Right. So going back to some of those early projects, some of them stood out to me just because I guess I had some relationship with those movies as, as a viewer. Particularly, uh, I saw Reversal of Fortune on your list, a very early HBO movie, right? No, uh, Reversal was a feature film. Then it was, because it was on HBO quite a bit, Yes, <laughs> that I associated it with It is still running. I actually saw it recently. That's a very interesting movie in that it portrays a, a real-life event told from the point of view, I guess, of a person on life support. The real-life story of Klaus and Sonny von Bülow. How did you get that gig? Was that just a natural progression of doing work and getting noticed? or That's a really interesting question because I would say that was a very big turning point for me. I interviewed for that job and I remember that being the first job that I ever got the call saying, you're hired, you're the one. And I really actually remember getting off the phone and jumping up and down in my apartment. <laughs> wow. I mean, um, I guess in your line of work, you work with big names all the time, but Glenn Close, Jeremy Irons, these are big names that are going to draw a lot of people to the, to the theater, I imagine. It was that, but it was also the opportunity to portray this whole world that they lived in. Opulent lifestyle. Like Opulent that. lifestyle. And, you know, for, it was for me, I'd say an elevated plateau, you know, was getting to that next level in terms of my work. I got to imagine like like in, in set decoration, there are certain things that are challenging, like like when you did the, the Vietnam War story, that sounded challenging. Whereas something like Reversal of Fortune showing how the, the other half live, <laughs> uh, that, might, that might strike me as fun. You know what? They were both incredibly challenging in very different ways. On Vietnam War Story, I actually started that job with Charles Bennett, who after I'll Take Manhattan had become a production designer I collaborated with often. And he took me into another aspect of my career, which was really the first time I traveled and worked on location. With him, I did a number of jobs in Georgia. So it was New York City girl goes to Georgia. And on Vietnam War story, we actually planted rice paddies. We flooded fields and planted rice paddies with plastic rice sprouts. In those days, and in Georgia, a non-union state, the way that we worked was we actually had labor from the local unemployment office come down and work with me as set dressers. So, so semi-skilled labor. <laughs> yeah, that was an incredible experience. And I've told this story often to my crew, but when we scouted those locations, our director was the actor George Sanford Brown, and it was myself and the location manager and our tech advisor, who was Dale Dye, a very famous war film and TV tech advisor. And, you know, I was not the most savvy in this area, let alone the girl from New York City who really enjoyed walking in fields in <laughs> out in Macon and Savannah, Georgia, with all the bugs and right. 
you not, know, not exactly uh, your element. Not, I, I was out of my element, but I was trying to pull it off really, really well. Trying to play it cool. And, and I, I got through a number of days of location scouting, and I was so proud of myself, doing extremely well, until probably about the last two hours when we were looking at swamps, and the location manager thought it would be funny to take a stick and rub it up the back of my leg. And I jumped into the air, screaming bloody murder, and blew my cover in an instant. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, joking around is kind of a level of acceptance, right? That's a good thing. Uh <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Days were different then. But whatever. I made it through and... We created Vietnam, and that was an incredible experience. I got to think that in, in one part of your mind, on the list of things to do, the part that said evaluate swamps, that might have been like, you're kidding, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> packing, packing to go on that job, you know, that was a very method job where there weren't many women on the job. Mm. Uh, the actors were being put through boot camp. Everybody was extremely serious and acting in a method way that they were mm -hmm. uh, participating in the war, in the struggle. So it was odd in the off hours and it was very serious, except for those few attempts to get me to <laughs> scream. Um, but it was, it, it was really an incredible job. And very well received as really one of the first miniseries on HBO. Let's fast forward to Jumanji shooting for what was at that time one of the biggest extravaganzas of CGI up to that time. Yes, it was. And that was handled exquisitely by the production designer Jim Bissell. We actually shot in Keene, New Hampshire during two different seasons. So we were there as a shooting unit and left and then went back. And my work on that was, again, mostly to provide the tangible, specific period store dressing and exterior dressing and things that we need. And certainly Jim and all the visual effects people took care of the rest of it. It was my second job with Robin Williams. I had early, early in my career done a Saul Bellow TV story with him called Seize the Day. Being a set decorator and being welcomed into a small town, you know, I have the opportunity to infuse that town wherever we're working really with a lot of income. You know, a sure. film company provides a lot of ancillary businesses with income, which is why even right now, you know, New York is suffering from us not being able to work and bring in the kind of clean income that we do. A number of years ago, I got to go on a backlot tour at, at Sony in Culver City, and they were shooting Zathura, the Jumanji sequel. Mm -hmm. And they had built the houses on a soundstage, basically. And what stood out to me, one of the things that stood out to me was that there were sequences, I guess, that you take for granted in the movie where things get destroyed. They need to blow it up for whatever reason, but maybe they didn't get it right or, 
<laughs> they didn't get it on camera. So they got to have a carpenter come in, rebuild whatever it is. Well, usually you go into it having many, many meetings, deciding how many takes you're going to provide the director with. Okay. And that's usually based on finances. So whatever gets damaged or whatever's going to be stained with fake blood or, you know, Mm -hmm. shot up all those things are planned in advance and as the set decorator it's my job to say how many takes are we doing and having everything done to immediately reset right because if you got to either rebuild or just supply another breakfast hutch or whatever gets destroyed <laughs> i guess that that adds up it's all in the planning yep you know pre-production as we call it is key to everything we start with the script break down the script then we decide what's going to be shot where, whether it's on a soundstage or on location. And then we go into every detail that you could possibly think of, from the color story we're telling to how many takes we're going to do, when something's going to be scheduled. Very often you get a script, especially in television, where you're shooting an episode a new episode every eight or 10 days. Right. So it's kind of a negotiation of what they can shoot first, what we have, what we have to do, my department, how many weekends we have to work. We're the last line of defense. You know, the set gets built and then it gets painted or wallpapered by the scenic department. And then it's on to my department to dress it. And we're there right up until we open the set to shoot. Is that all considered above the line type costs? Below the line. Below the line costs. Oh, okay. yeah. All right, TV and movie fans out there. The <laughs> we're learning our, our terminology correctly. <laughs> A couple other projects that stood out from, from your movies were Private Parts and Wanted. Did you get to meet the king of all media? I did meet the king of all media, yes. And Private Parts was really an incredible job because we built practically everything. Really? Uh, yeah. The interesting thing about Private Parts is that Howard did his show in the morning, his radio show, and then came to work at Silver Cup Studios where we shot almost the entire movie. We worked what's called French hours where you don't take a break for lunch. You don't stop. There's food provided throughout the day. And that's how we worked and were able to shoot on private parts so he could do his morning talk show. Private parts I did with the late Charles Rosen, who was a brilliant, brilliant production designer. Again, we were given this opportunity to recreate Howard's world and it was a period film. And we did have some photos from his growing up to base our work on. But very often on that job, when we were looking at a location, for instance, there's a campsite, a camping tent scene. Okay. We just decided at the last minute, we'll just build it. We'll just put it on the stage. That's another part of being a set decorator that you have to be able to go with the flow. You have to shift gears. You always have to be able to say, okay, we can do this. This is what it's going to cost. This is the amount of manpower it's going to take. But we know how to do this. And the more years that you're in it, the more you know how to pull that rabbit out of your you-know-what. <laughs> and that's how we roll. I think in the end, you know, we did 
way over a hundred sets for private parts. I wouldn't have guessed. I would have guessed there would have been more location shooting mm -hmm. to an extent, like the NBC offices and all that kind of stuff. Seems like you could have found that someplace. Uh, we built those on stage. Wow! Uh, and the the brilliance of Charles Rosen was in order to recreate the long, long, long hallways <laughs> at NBC. Yeah. And again, remember, this was pre-major visual effects. We used a translite, a, a photograph of the actual hallway, the actual doors. And we hung that at the end of a semi-long hallway. But it just then made it look like it went on and repeated wow. forever. I'm going to have to go watch that because translites are tricky. Because um, mm -hmm. they... Uh, they're not always viable, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you, I, I bet, I bet you'll deem this trick that was created for private parts viable. I did not catch it the first time I saw it, but it's been a while since I've seen it. Uh, oh, that's really interesting. You know, private parts, even Reversal of Fortune, it's so strange to me because they're period films to begin with but now they look so period to me when i watch them back mm -hmm. so it's so interesting but it's really you know the the whole point is capturing the character and creating who they are and it's the story of that person that character at the time but in both those situations, it was, you know, a privilege to tell a real person's story. The last movie that I want to ask about is Wanted. A lot of times when a foreign director comes over, uh, he brings a lot of his own crew. Did you have to have to work with a large amount of Russian crew? Not in that case. Again, an Academy Award winning brilliant production designer, John Meyer, he put our team together in New York. Again, that was a New York unit that felt like an entire film. You know, when when you are working at a level, both budget-wise and celebrity-wise and major studio picture, the ability to have proper preparation time and a budget that can accommodate what needs to get done is really what helps me do my job. Right. Many, many times, whether it's a New York unit, a full feature, even an episode of TV, we do so much work that may end up not even making it into the film or may end up feeling when an editor and a director are putting an episode together, they call it shoe leather, too much shoe leather. So we don't end up seeing all the effort that we make but it's there, and that's how we start. And it's something that you can't get attached to, you know? Right. I don't know if Caroline's mentioned, but um, I have an art degree. Nothing elaborate, nothing fancy. It's just <laughs> a state school art degree. But that was one of the lessons that was hardest to learn as a student because you haven't made anything yet, right? And so everything right. you make is is just wonderful. And and their advice was do not get precious about anything that you make. <laughs> just make it, move on to the next thing. I did have to really learn that lesson of not being so attached to any of it. And, you know, you see the sets go up, you see the sets come down. It's something that you take with you, you know, in photos yeah. or precious memento from one character in particular. And you know, you got to move on to the next one. 
Looking at your credits, it looks like in 2005, you shifted from movies and TV to pretty much only TV with a couple of movies here and there. Is that a correct assumption? And it is an observation. That's completely correct. And I think I made a really smart choice in doing that because New York became and has really been a TV town since I made that move. I had this odd concept that I would have a more regularly scheduled life. I have a daughter who was born in 2001. So I had a young child and I thought if I was working on a TV show, I would have a real schedule instead of trying to piece one movie after another together. Right. So that was my initial decision. That's what it was based on. And I just ended up hitting it one TV show after another. Also looking at your at your credits, I can see that there's a few things that you worked on, just a pilot and other things that move on to entire series. And I understand that that's kind of common where a pilot can be shot with one crew, one cast, and then it moves on, but nobody moves with it except for maybe the producers. How does that work? Like behind the scenes, is that just kind of understood that that's just part of the deal? It's understood. It's mainly about timing and how teams move from one job to the next. For instance, I did the first season of Fringe and when they decided to pick up the show, they decided to shoot it in Canada. So I had to pack up every single solitary item and fill out the paperwork for it to go through customs, which kind of felt like as long as I did the entire season. But that was a product of production decisions. Most people move to Canada because of cost is what I understand. Or more like a desire to keep the show going, so they have to find ways to make things cost less. And it can also be cast-related. Many shows shoot New York because the cast lives here and wants to be in New York. It, it, it all depends on where you are with the work. You know, I did the pilot of Why the Last Man, and they still haven't really come around to be shooting it. And again, that's a show I'm sure that will not shoot in New York. But we shift, you know, sometimes we do a pilot and then the show ends up being shot somewhere else or doesn't fit into my schedule. I see. I know that pilots are often shot well ahead of everything else. At least they used to be. Like, uh, as I understand it, Netflix and things like that has kind of changed the way that things are shot. Yeah, there's no real season anymore and kind of schedule. And, you know, what's shifted in the last two, three years in terms of being a set decorator or any crew member in TV is that we used to do 22 episodes a season. Yeah. And now we're doing, you know, probably anywhere between 10 and 13. So... I am always looking to take care of my team and to fill in the weeks of the year that are left. Sometimes in film and TV, if you pay attention to behind the scenes information, people like me will find out that Easter eggs have been placed somewhere in the set. Um, Mm, The old Easter egg. Yeah. Is that something that you do? It is something I do. I won't go all the way with it. My crew likes for that Easter egg to be something cat-related. Cat-related? Yes. Okay. Um, But that's a little bit where I draw the line. But I do tend to use things 
over and over again for all different characters. As a matter of fact, that's kind of my own excitement. You know, when myself and my assistant set decorators, we pull from our shop of items and we pull something and we have a memory of it as being an iconic piece for one character. And then we bring it into another setting. When I designed a line of home decor for IMAX Worldwide Home, it was my go-to items, I would say, my go-to set pieces. And what I like in that sense is to have something that could be universally used no matter what the character, what the period, what the style is. So we do plant things here and there. Maybe we'll use the same lamp and change the lampshade. And I do have an incredible fan base of very, very visually intelligent people who notice so many things, ask so many good questions. So often that is in episodic TV, especially, that's something that keeps us all going behind the scenes. It sounds kind of fun to keep track of that kind of thing because to an extent i'll do that for the movies that i like where they'll say you know see that thing in the background that was actually repainted and it was had originally been this other set piece that you didn't even know (laughs) but it there it is and and yeah well we do that like in a practical way we do it in a joking way you know we are a business especially in the set deck of uh you know reusing repurposing we're, we're probably like the original recyclers. I bet. The less you um, cost, the more you can get when you ask for it, probably. Yeah. And it's just, you know, if it's there and it's accessible to you, it works, you know. Um, and it gives so the items some, a history. That's it does. It does. It all has its lineage, you know, that really is a great thing. And, and when you can tie it script wise, it's a good story. So I'll give you this story. Okay. So in regards to that, I was actually interviewed by Entertainment Weekly on a story of exactly this, that a fan had noticed in The Good Wife that one of the characters, David Lee, had all kinds of candy in his office. He was a divorce attorney, and that was written into the script. And I bought beautiful bowls and filled them with beautiful candies all different kinds of old-fashioned candy. And in Fringe, also in a script for Walter's apartment, it called for candy as well. And this particular fan thought that I was giving some kind of message through Red Vines. Ah. The Easter eggs really only go from one episode to another. They don't necessarily jump into different shows, But in that case, that's what people thought I was trying to intermingle uh, Fringe and The Good Wife. All one contiguous universe uh, of... (laughs) Of red vines. (laughs) And and that's my, you know, that's my calling card. Well, I will be on the lookout from now on for your your candy choices on, (laughs) on set. It has been my pleasure to talk to you today, Beth. I hope that in the future... I'll get to ask you some more behind the scenes questions, if that's okay by you. Absolutely, Paul. And I hope that fans of the podcast will DM me their questions at Back Home Decor, B-A-K Home Decor on Instagram. 
and keep them coming. Thank everybody for listening. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Decorating the Set on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Five stars, everybody. Decorating the Set from Hollywood to Your Home is a Pod Clubhouse original production. Recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, please visit us online at podclubhouse.com. Pod Clubhouse.